Welcome to Cooking Books, a new weekly podcast series of half-hour programmes exploring the role of food in books. I'm Julie Smith and I will be in the kitchens of some of our best-loved authors and brand new writers as Cooking the Books savours four food moments that add depth and flavour to our favourite stories. Each week I'll be talking to authors who use food as character in their novels, cookbooks or biographies. Sarah Paretsky talks about the food that drives her plot and feeds the Italian stroke Polish depths of V.I. Wachowski, while Melissa Hemsley takes us through the four dishes that greened up her life. Award-winning children's writer Kieran Millwood-Hargrave tells us about the food that puts the flesh on the bones of the women in her first adult novel, The Mercies. And Anna Roche, star of Netflix Chef's Table, takes us through the dishes that tell the story of her life in her debut memoir, Sun and Rain. Bake Off's Miranda Gore-Brown and Romy Gill, MBE, show us why food is always the story for them. And to start the series, Olivia Potts talks through the food of grief in her half-baked idea. I went to her kitchen to ask her where the story starts. Uh, So a half-baked idea begins on the day my mother dies, when I was 24 um, and she hadn't been ill with a terminal illness or anything like that. She'd been poorly for quite a long time, but not in a way that we thought she would die. So her death was extremely unexpected and uh, quite traumatic. And I was about 300 miles away when it happened in London um, and headed back up north to try and deal with my life without my mum. And I thought that most things after the funeral would continue as normal. But in fact... I found that the job that I was doing, a criminal barrister in London, was making me increasingly unhappy. And I uh, separately had begun cooking, very quietly and very badly. But I'd begun cooking. And you'd become... You'd started cooking because your boyfriend at the time, now your husband, was actually a bit of a cook. Yeah, he was quite good. He he would make his own bread and he turned up on one of our dates late because he was waiting for his marmalade to set and... I mean, I'd like to say that he sort of encouraged me into it in a romantic way, but actually I think I'm just competitive and I didn't <laughs> like the fact that he could do something I couldn't. I thought, well, if he can manage that, surely it can't be that hard. And that's really what, what sort of set me off on a course of cooking and baking. Now, you see, I read it differently. And the wonderful thing oh. about books is that it's... I'm just as right as you oh, are. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, I read it that Sam was just very quietly nourishing you, <laughs> feeding you. He's a feeder. Yeah. And you were falling apart. I mean, you really... This hit you incredibly hard. I mean, your mother died way too young. And the, the tragedy was that she died alone. Yes, yes. She was um, She was alone in Newcastle when it happened. And I... I because it was so sudden, of course, there was no opportunity to say goodbye. Uh, and I think that was something I found very difficult at the time. And as you say, I, I really was falling apart. But at the time, the most important thing to me was to appear to be completely the opposite, to be composed and serene. And like I was just taking this sort of once in a lifetime, hopefully for me, grief in my stride. Uh, whereas actually it was just eating me from the inside out, I think, really. Yeah. I mean, you you lost your mother out of very important time yeah you'd, you'd been a lawyer for what three years yes I think three years at that point yeah so you know you had moved to London you were meeting your first boyfriend I mean that was the first night that you were with Sam the, the very first <laughs> night the night your mother died yeah she never met him she never met him we had we had a, a phone conversation the afternoon before she died obviously I had no idea that, that was going to happen um and she said that I had to bring him home to meet her and she would she would feed him shepherd's pie but no, she never met him. And, and in a way, that was incredibly 
difficult and continues to be a, a source of real sadness. But also it meant that he was able to love me in a different way. He was he was really the only person in my life who was close to me who hadn't known my mother before she died at that time. So he was able to, as you say, I suppose, nourish me and, and treat me um, as a grieving person, but but that is just being a facet of my personality rather than the entirety of who I was then. Yes, because you you write about how you bump into people uh, at gatherings up back in Newcastle at home where you came from. And you people say, oh, you're Ruth Potts' daughter. Yeah. And you say, I was. Yeah, I mean, I've, I still feel awful about that. It was a brutal way that I that I dealt with this very nice person going, no, well, she's dead. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, you, are, you do feel brutal in grief and you feel you want to be cruel because you want to outsource the, the the sadness and the pain that's inside you and that that did make me cruel yeah so you were taking on these extraordinary cases you got to the old bailey really quickly i mean you were a super successful lawyer and yet you couldn't really enjoy it your the, the death of your mother the loss of your mother through this really important time and my daughter my eldest daughter's 24 and i'm just thinking about all the important things that she goes through and my 21 year old but mm. particularly my 24 year old because she's just started the world of work and she's yeah. on the phone all the time telling me about all these extraordinary things and even though you were absolutely, it didn't stop you achieving. You went on a super streak. It quickly, fairly quickly became clear that this was not the thing for you. Yeah. I mean, I don't know and and will never know how much I was simply unsuited to being a criminal barrister and and whether mum's death was simply a catalyst uh, for me leaving or, or whether it really was the this sort of criterion build-up, uh, and I, I couldn't cope anymore. But I was so unhappy. I couldn't, I couldn't leave the cases in the courtroom. Um, and and when I tried, I felt like I was being uh, emotionally catatonic. And you you can't do that as a barrister. You need to tread this very fine line be- between not taking on your clients' um, personal difficulties whilst also being able to. Uh, provide some counsel to them and represent them properly in court and I just felt like I flitted from one extreme to the other Uh, and it was it 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 quickly became apparent that the anxiety for me that went alongside that was making the job untenable yeah and something else very profound was happening in your life in that you were finding uh that cooking which hadn't been something that you'd had at home your (laughs) mother was not a cook (laughs) But you were finding that cooking was soothing you. Yes. And you write very beautifully about the, the, the... Well, tell us about the recipe that you've chosen as your first of your four food moments. Okay, so my first food moment is uh, fish pie, which was, I, I think, the, the first real dish that I made after Mum had died. Uh, and, and before Mum died, I, I, I really, as you say, I wasn't a cook. I had um, one Nigella orange cake recipe that I would pull out of the bag when I needed to. But that was it. Uh, I lived on supermarket pasta and supermarket sauces, and, and that was it. Sam's bread. Yeah, yeah Sam's bread and marmalade, exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure I even liked marmalade at that point. That, that took a bit of growing on me. Um, so I, I was living in Crouch End at the time, and I walked around the tiny uh, Crouch End Waitrose, planning to pick up my usual supermarket pasta and supermarket sauce and I walked past the um the fish section and there was a little triple pack of um fish pie mix the 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 smoked fish the white fish and the salmon which I'd never even considered before but they're often reduced and I think that probably was the thing that that made me pick it up and I thought I'm going to make a fish pie 
And I, I walked around the rest of the shop in a bit of a dream, thinking, what do you need to make a fish pie? You need potatoes, and you probably need milk, uh, and maybe some cheese, uh, perhaps some onion. I mean, I guessed. It was complete guesswork. And I went home, and I did what any good millennial cook does. I googled a fish pie recipe. And I made it according to that recipe. And I... God, which I, one did you use? Um, I, do you know, I genuinely don't know. I, I would imagine a BBC good food recipe, but I am guessing, if I'm honest. Um, that, I mean, it just didn't matter. It was, it was honestly like this sort of unconscious process that I was going through. And I thought, well, I don't know how to make a white sauce. And then I followed the, the instructions and I realised I'd made a white sauce and, and that it was as sort of as simple as that. You just follow one, two, three and you get the product at the end. And I got the fish pie into the oven and it was looking beautiful and ready to go. And I suddenly thought, oh God, I hate fish pie. How have I got this far in the entire process without realising I've never liked fish pie? My mum would make me sit on a Friday. We often had fish pie on a Friday, we're traditional like that. And I would force mouthful after mouthful down, you know, gurning my way through it. And the first dish I've chosen to make in the wake of her death was a fish pie. So why was that? I honestly don't know. Um, I mean, I could, I could go back, re- you know, with retrospective glasses on and say, well, it was something she used to make. And it was something that makes me think of her and brings me comfort. But it wasn't really something that brought me comfort at the time. It was just a dish and I suppose the elements of fish pie are intrinsically nourishing. You know, fish is good for you. It's got this sort of creamy white sauce and it's the hot potato. Food. It is real comfort. It's nursery food, really. Mm, mm. Um, and, I, and I discovered when I finally tucked into it, thinking you can't put a whole fish pie in the bin, um, that it was completely delicious. And I did like fish pie. And that there was something perhaps really delightful about making something and eating it yourself. And that was the first time that I'd, I'd really done that beyond, you know, tortellini from a packet. And, and although, you know, that was the first time you'd ever made a white sauce and you realised when you were making it that you, you don't know how to make a white sauce. You obviously following the recipe, but yeah. you'd never seen it done. No, no one had taught me. And now there was no one there to teach me, really, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, later on, and spoiler alert, <laughs> but you do get to make sauces pretty well. And I'm just going to read a little bit about the custard that you make way later eggs of fragile beasts prone to splitting mixtures curdling and going lumpy ruining an otherwise perfectly smooth sauce but they are also the thing that makes non-packet custard magical you apply gentle heat stir and suddenly a thin liquid coalesces into a beautiful thick satisfying sauce the risked alternative is as upsetting as the desired outcome is marvelous in a heartbeat the luscious primrose liquid can split into sugary scrambled eggs. And I love those two passages. You know, the kind of the, the real amateur making her way through this fish pie that's somewhere in her unconscious. But finding that the meditative stirring of that fish, of the sauce, mm. of the roux sauce, basic roux, isn't it? Yeah. Um, had spoken to you in some way. Yeah. I mean, I, I really... I've obviously been doing this for a little while now, but I I really am struck again and again by quite how magical cooking is. And I don't mean that in some sort of airy-fairy way. I mean, you literally follow basic instructions, perhaps apply some heat and a little bit of elbow grease, and ingredients transform. And that, I think, is probably what I was experiencing that first time with the fish pie, Uh, um, what is very much the case with a custard that works, Um, but also 
what captured uh, my my imagination and made me really fall in love with cooking. Yeah, and I think that you know that what was going on psychologically for you was so all over the show. Yeah. You were so stressed and so anxious, and you just were so completely consumed with grief that mm-hmm. actually a beautiful source doing what a beautiful source should do, yeah. becoming very smooth in your life, kind of was transforming. Yes, and that that ability to get the desired outcome is very stabilizing um when you when as you say everything is chaos everything is panic and anxiety and unhappiness to it's the same with baking a cake to 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 follow instructions put it into the oven and to have something come out that is not only completely different to what went in but is what you've been told is going to come out is uh more than reassuring it's it it is um invigorating and exciting and i think it was the first tiny pricks of hope uh, for the future that, that was coming. It didn't feel like it when I ate that fish pie, but that's what was coming out <laughs> of that white sauce uh, and what continued to come to me from cooking. Yeah. And before we get on to, you know, how your life actually changed, mm. your second food moment is your mother's minestrone. Yes. Uh, so minestrone was um, the soup that mum would make First of all, every Christmas Eve, but secondly, when we were poorly. So it was both a a celebratory soup and a real um, healing soup, I suppose. Uh, And I was, I mean, I was a very sickly teenager. I was often unwell. And so I would eat litres of this minestrone soup. And and she would sit there, sitting opposite me at the dining table, and I would eat the soup, and then we would walk around the garden. And that was our routine when I was very poorly. Um, So it was massively bound up with emotion. And uh, although it didn't quite fit with the, the pattern of other things that I, I became obsessive about once I started cooking, which were mostly baking-based, I did become very obsessive about wanting to recreate her minestrone soup. Uh, and I tried... I mean, I don't even know how many recipes I tried to get this minestrone soup right. And I asked my dad and I asked my sister. And they tried to help, but also did not understand where this uh, compulsion to, to get it right and to make it was coming from. Um, and I, you know, Sam and I must have eaten many, many minestrone soups over probably a year, a year and a half, how long it took me trying to find it. And I, I mean, I eventually gave up and thought, I will never know what her minestrone soup is. It's fine. I can make a leek and potato soup. It's fine. Um, and then I got a further haul of her books from my dad later on, uh, after a little while after she died. Uh, and they were mostly her fiction books, but there were a few um, cookery books within there, and they were very, very old-fashioned. And I was flicking through them idly one evening. I certainly didn't think I was going to find anything useful in them. And I found the minestrone soup. And I nearly flicked over the page, and I thought, no, that's it. That is her soup. Those are the elements that go into it. Um, and I hadn't even looked at what I was reading, and it was Delia's Complete Cookery Course, the most famous basic <laughs> cookbook, probably... In the English-speaking world. And obviously that is where my mother, who, you know, came of age in the, the late 70s and early 80s, of course that was where her minestrone soup came from. But I'd never looked for it. I'd never thought. Uh, and I was then able, finally, to recreate her minestrone soup. Yeah, and, and what that means is so important. I, I completely get that as well. Yeah. My parents were big cooks, and, and actually I really do have to create, recreate their, the, their dishes in exactly the same yes. way. I, although I play with them now because I feel confident yeah, yeah, yeah. about having got them back. But it was that process of, you know, which comes first? At what point do you put the pancetta yeah. in? Why was isn't it, it right? Was it pancetta or bacon? I th- Well, mum definitely used to make it with bacon. Um, I, 
I can't remember whether or not Delia makes it with bacon. I think she also makes it with ham stock, which mum didn't. So I have to do... And she, mum always used to add courgettes. So I knew those bits. I, I, but once I knew what the base recipe was, as you say, I could deviate from it because yeah. I knew what I was working with. Um, but it was a real, it was a real act of love when Mum would make it because you, you have to dice all your vegetables perfectly first. And I, I can picture her exact chopping board with the little piles of different brightly coloured vegetables that, as you say, would go in a particular order so the courgettes don't end up soggy, but the carrot is cooked through and you know, everything like that. Uh, and unlocking that recipe really felt, oh, I don't know, like a legacy, like a, inherit, a culinary inheritance that I, I'd really felt like I lacked by her dying before I'd found this interest in food. Yes, it's sort of like the, the photographs that you have in your head of people doing things. You can see your mother in the kitchen, but actually having re- access to the real yeah. recipe means that it can come alive. Again. Yes, and it's something that, that is now a real part of my life. And if we ever have children, I would absolutely pass it on to them, even though I'm really just passing on a Delia Smith recipe. It's, it is part of what made me in, in both literal and figurative ways. Yeah. That's what I grew up on. Um, and uh, having that does feel like having a tiny piece of mum. Yeah. So food had become, or rather cookery had really become something that was much more well, it was becoming visceral to mm. you. It was becoming meaningful in a very visceral way. And led to you, how directly would you say to making this big plunge, which was to give up your career yeah. and become a cook? Well, I, I think I'd realised, a little while before I, I knew exactly what path I was going to take, I realised that I couldn't stay at the criminal bar forever because it was just making me, I mean, not just unhappy. I felt, I, I mean, I felt a bit unhinged. I was able to go in and do the job, but I was just so desperately unhappy. Um, and I'd spoken to Sam about this, but not really anyone else. And we, we'd sort of played around with a few ideas of what I could go and do, but I wasn't trained to do anything else. I was, a, I was a 24-year-old woman who had always wanted to be a criminal barrister. Everything that I had done had been focused towards being a criminal barrister. I had no other skills whatsoever. Um, I didn't really know what to do. And then at the same time, almost... Uh, without any as if these two halves of me weren't talking to one another I was spending all my spare time cooking and slowly becoming better at it but I it took me quite a while to lock those two things together and I think it was very clear to me that if I were going to leave the criminal bar I couldn't simply start cooking or baking or writing about food for a living because I simply didn't have the expertise um or the the skill set or the knowledge uh and um that's when that's probably around the time that I somehow came upon the Cordon Bleu website. And I don't remember the first time, but I do have a very vivid memory of sitting in my room in, in a flat in this flat sharing Crouch End and going to type in uh, the Cordon Bleu website address and it just showing up automatically because every evening I would go and I would sit and I would look at it and I would say to myself, can you go and do this? Are you being even more mad <laughs> than you already have been? Um, and yeah, it, it quickly became... And it's just the website became a source of comfort. <laughs> I mean, it is a terrifying prospect. I mean, I've been cooking all my life and I can't think of anything more terrifying. I mean, you do take these things on, don't you? I mean, yeah. being a lawyer, standing in the yeah. old belly, you know, and then going to cordon bleu. Yeah, I don't like to make things easy for myself. And I love an institution. <laughs> thoroughly institutionalised at this stage of my life. Tell us about your third food moment, which is your first which day at first, Le Cordon Bleu. First day at Cordon Bleu. So, I mean, well, for starters, I'm, I'm, I'm in chef's whites and I look completely ridiculous. 
Um, they have one size of hat, which is is definitely too small for what turns out to be my giant head. <laughs> I, up until that point in my life, did not realise I had an unusually large head, but I do. Um, everyone else looks born to these whites, whereas the, like the the chef's jacket is just ridiculous on me, and I haven't properly hemmed the um, the trousers, and I'm wearing these stupid big clogs that I can't walk in. Um, but I, th- but I, I, I do sort of think to myself, look, it's going to be fine because you are all starting this at the same stage. And then we begin our first practical, which is making a fruit salad. And we are given three hours to make this fruit salad. And we've watched a three-hour lecture on how to make a fruit salad. So I think it can't go that badly wrong. And we start doing it and everyone knows what they're doing. And I just lose every not even every skill like I lose motor control I have no idea what I'm doing I'm I clearly remember standing in front of the um the the fridge which had all the fruit in it and thinking I do not know what what to do with any of these things there was this packet of packet of red currants and I was like can I put red currants in a fruit salad how do you prepare do I have to cut them in half what is the banana <laughs> and all around me it's like some kind of I don't know like weird iPhone um, fruit chopping game. People just know exactly what they're doing. I'm t- we've been told for three hours how sharp these knives are. I'm petrified. I'm trying to work out if there's a way I can prepare this fruit salad without actually having to remove any of my knives from my knife kit. Um, <laughs> I, it was just I mean, what horrifying. What were they asking you to do? Was it every grape had to become a crown? No, no. So yes, we had to make... We, well, we didn't have to make grape crowns. We were told that grape crowns were something we could make and then everyone around me started making them. I thought, <laughs> no one... Who knows how to make a grape crown? No one's going to make a grape crown. <laughs> Turns out, yes, we do continue to be in the 1970s at Le Cordon Bleu. Everyone makes grape crowns. Um, we, we simply had to put together a fruit salad um, that was nicely chopped, showing an, an array of different knife skills. We had to make a simple syrup. So it had to be as you would want to eat a fruit salad. So um, we had oranges that we were simply supposed to segment. And honestly, the first orange I did, I had to like discreetly bin because it was just this massive like pulp and mess and everything was everywhere. I've sort of got these blueberries that I'm cutting in half thinking I've literally never cut a blueberry in half in my life. Why is ever and, and people were making swans out of plums. I just had... No, this idea is what lesson I one. This Day is lesson one. one, and I, you know, I thought, oh yeah, the chefs are going to show us things that we'll we'll be able to do. But it's not like everyone's going to be able to do this. Everyone could do this, and it had not occurred to me that people would go to Le Cordon Bleu having had some kind of career in a restaurant. So they knew, they knew how to clear down a work a worktop professionally. Rather, you know, I've just been there with my dishcloth at home. I have a clue what to do. They knew, you know what was stored in different places. They knew how to walk in these stupid shoes. <laughs> I, was, I just felt like an absolutely enormous fish out of water, just <laughs> flailing. And I, I did what, you know, what people have done since the dawn of time. I tried to copy my neighbour. So I had my like tiny little knife trying to make crowns out of blueberries. Uh, I did try to make a, a swan out of a plum, but that, that didn't work. The blueberries at least sat in my fruit salad. And I spent two and a half hours making this fruit salad, the best fruit salad I or perhaps anyone has ever made in their entire lives. And then the the chef came around, he was terrifying. And I think quite enjoyed being terrifying. He became much less terrifying as the course went on. But on that day, I was petrified. And he loomed over me with his massive um, white toque that all the chefs at Cordon Bleu wear on their heads. And he crossed his arms and took one cursory look at my fruit salad and said, 
well, that's unadventurous and moved on. And that was my entire feedback for two and a half hours of prepping these fruits. And I just thought, oh my God, what have I done? Why am I here? Can I go back to the bar? So why were you there after that first day? Or maybe, you know, by the end of the first week, Mm. what were you thinking? Um, (laughs) I think I was probably thinking that I was was a fool, but also a proud fool that had to see out what, what I'd done. I decided to go there because I was aware that I'd come to cookery, not late in life, but without a culinary inheritance and without anyone to teach me. And the internet's brilliant in terms of teaching yourself to cook, but also deeply um, muddied. And you don't know what's a good recipe, what's a bad recipe. I felt like I was able to make things, but not understand when something went wrong. And I really wanted this comprehensive teaching. If I was going to take the plunge and go from one career to another, I wanted to get to the highest possible level as fast as possible. Um, So that was my original motivation. But I, I did... At the end of the first week, I did come home and just think, well, you're going to have to see this out because you can't go back to the criminal bar. This will be far too embarrassing. You've had a leaving party. You've told everyone you're ditching theft trials for making cake. You've got to go. But also um, it perhaps uh, reframed my, my idea of, of how preternaturally good I might be at this entire career. But you are a winner. You've already said you're very competitive. <laughs> and you are a winner. I and you're just stubborn. <laughs> Those are the crucial ingredients for winning. And of course, your fourth food food moment is your last. It's your exam piece. Yes. So fast forward nine months. um, And having made an unadventurous fruit salad, I I am now expected to produce um, one full-size entremet and two miniature entremets. Tell us what an entremet is. So an entremet is um, a multi-layered, multi-textured, multi-flavoured pudding. Um, that is made in a mould. So um, you are, for example, we had to have a, a jelly layer, a crisp layer, a sponge layer, um, a, a custard layer. Uh, we couldn't repeat flavours and we um, had to make sure that it was all sort of in sync with one another. So that that's what an entremet is. Um, they've actually become slightly trendier since, since my course. And you do sort of see them on Bake Off and on the Australian cookery shows and that kind of thing. But at the time, I'd never seen one and I didn't know what it, what it was. Uh, what they are effectively trying to get you to do is to do as many different skills and elements as possible, whilst also understanding how to put together a complicated pudding under time conditions. So, uh, yes, you had to do that and you had to do two identical miniature ones. And then you had six hours from start to finish. And then that would be judged by um, chefs from within the school and chefs from outside the school. Uh, and I mean, again, spoilers, but I managed it, which still, I mean, sitting here in, in my dining room talking to you today feels um, unlikely. <laughs> I think if you asked me to reproduce that onto me now, I might struggle a bit. It served as a very real comparison between how where I'd begun, I suppose, and where I ended up. And um, it often feels when you are learning something from scratch that you are being taught all sorts of, um, frankly, useless techniques or, or um, skills. And it's not until you see them all come together that you realise um, how proficient you've, you've become. Um, and handing over that finished entremet and the two finished puddings, you have to carry them up yourself, um, up, the, up the back stairs and cordon bleu to the judging chamber. 
Um, and the horror stories abound about people tripping and then, oh, and dropping gosh. their puddings and then failing. So the count, you know, being able to literally step back and look at this quite complicated, um, quite objectively impressive pudding that you have made and hand it over and say, that is my nine months. Judge me on that. Was a really, um, a really moving moment, I suppose. I think I just ran off and got changed and then went for a drink with my friends. But looking back on it, it was quite moving. It was a fantastic achievement. And it also tells that it's a journey from being absolutely on your knees with grief to something that was very challenging, but also incredibly distracting and quite useful, I imagine. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, as as I sort of talk about (laughs) extensively in the book, um, a lot of the the patisserie stuff that I was doing, I didn't have a natural bent for. Um, I'm not naturally artistic. Um, I'd never pursued anything that required me to have very fine motor skill or, or frankly, patience. Uh, And that first career that I'd gone into played into all my strengths. So although, you know, it's a drag doing exams and learning things, I was, I was naturally quite good at it. And that nine months of really sticking at something that you are not good at and makes you want to shout and getting to a point where you have mastered those skills that you never thought you'd master um, is, I suppose it's a test of character um, and, and a test of, a test of faith. And I think before Cordon Bleu, with the, with the death of my mum and with being so unhappy in this job I'd wanted for so long, I'd lost a lot of faith. And getting to the end of that was, uh, was a victory. And your life looks quite different now. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, I'm a food writer and I'm a professional chef. Um, um, I own a catering company with my best friend who's also a food writer. We, um, we go up and down the country. We build professional kitchens um, in temporary locations and we, we cater weddings. I do wedding cakes. I, um, I do supper clubs and pop-ups and uh, I work for myself, which I suppose that's still the same in, in a way. You do work for yourself as a barrister, but um, my, my expenses look very different when I file my taxes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's almost six years since your mum died. Yeah. How are you feeling? Um, I think I'm much happier in my life now, which is quite a difficult thing to say because a lot of what led me to be happy has come out of the death of my mum, which is the greatest sadness I've I've ever experienced. Um, the reason I was able to go to Cordon Bleu was because I had a small amount of inheritance from her, and um, I think I would have uh, I would have struggled to do that were it not for the fact she died. Um, I I find it quite hard to reconcile that happiness with that sadness. But I think that's kind of grief and, and a real lu- luckiness for me. I'm, I'm not saying that that's everyone's experience of grief, but the shape of grief changes. Um, it, it starts out as this very um, raw, omnipresent um, experience in your life. And you, you feel like you can't see, you literally can't see past it. It's, I, my experience of grief felt very physical. I felt consumed by this sort of Dementor-like presence around me. Um, and I had a very physical reaction to it. But now it it sort of exists beside me rather than in front of me. Um, and I find new sadnesses and new sorrows, particularly as I get older um, and my life experience changes. And there are parts of that that I can't share with my mum. And getting married a couple of years ago was a huge happiness. But the fact that she wasn't there was, I mean, 
not bittersweet, it was just sad. It was just, you know, achingly, achingly sad um, and completely un- unimaginable to the person I was five years ago. I think as a person I look, my life looks completely different to how it looked then or how I ever expected it to look. And as I see on Twitter this morning, you finally filed to change your name to Sam's name. Well, not to Sam's name. Oh. Sam's, Sam's surname is Palin, uh, so we have mashed our surnames together. Oh. So professionally, I'll remain Potts, but we will become Pollen. But yes, it did take me two years to actually get the paperwork underway. But you're not your mother's daughter. No, I'm not. I'm not. Um, but I am. <laughs> That's very. I was trying to think of something incredibly articulate and moving to say that, but I just fundamentally am. But I'm also a 32-year-old woman who has no idea what my mum would think of me now, no idea what my mum would be like. Six years is a long time. The amount I've changed, she would have changed hugely as well. My sister's changed massively in that time. And it's something we talk about together a lot. Would, would she like us? Would she like our partners? Would we like her? Would we be as close as we were? I think... Probably the answer to all of those things is is yes, but the not knowing is um, is really difficult actually. So you've turned out to be a bit of a good writer as well. <laughs> um, yeah, well, uh, and I think I think that side my mum would uh, empathise with a lot more than the cooking side, which she was fine at, but didn't derive a huge amount of joy from. All she wanted was for her was for one of her daughters to to write, so she could vicariously um, pursue her writing ambitions through them. So uh-huh. that. That I've done well on, I suppose. And the next book? Uh, nothing, nothing yet. Nothing to report yet. But you are going to be doing a butchery course. I am. I am halfway through uh, a, a food NVQ in butchery at the moment. So I've moved from patisserie. You know, I've moved from shoe pastry to chopping chopping up lamb carcasses on a Tuesday morning in in Walthamstow. It's um, it's again not where I saw my life going, but I love it. I, I it's absolutely fascinating. And again, a skill that I have no natural bent for, but I'm thoroughly enjoying slowly learning. (laughs) Olivia Potts, thank you very much indeed.